Hello and welcome to the Noodlebugs podcast, where we discuss aspects of the natural world. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Today I'm speaking to environmental educator and compost enthusiast Arwen Birch. Hi Ned, thanks for having me. I first got into gardening when I was younger than you. I, I think I was about six or seven and I wanted, I just had a feeling that I wanted to grow things and so I asked my parents for a patch of garden in their backyard and they said, yep, you can have this little patch and I grew some parsley and some strawberries. I just loved the idea that you could grow things to eat and that seemed magic and I wanted to do it. Did you eventually use it in any cooking? Yes, yep. I mean it's sort of, you always have disasters with gardening so some it's not as easy as just starting and, and so it's good to fail because you learn from your failures so I think my strawberries weren't in a good spot and um, they had to go somewhere else but yeah you learn as you go along but yeah I did get to eat the parsley parsley is very easy to grow live laugh learn love (laughs) put that on a poster and I've grown parsley ever since if if I could only grow one thing it would be parsley because it goes on everything super nutritious and very easy to grow so you're talking a lot about like versatility or Maybe not, and I'm just imagining that, but I feel like there's a lot of different types of plants. So do different types of plants need different types of compost and soil? And if so, which plants need what soil? That's a great question, and it would be hard to answer in a a little snippet, but definitely yes is the answer to that question. Um, Some plants like a lot of nutrients, so there's nutrients in soil lots of um, micronutrients like iron and calcium and magnesium and they help the plants to grow and then the the macro ones like phosphorus um, nitrogen potassium and all those nutrients help plants to grow and some of them require higher amounts of some of those nutrients than others some weeds for example will grow if the nutrients are very very poor they'll just pop up and they'll be able to um, survive and grow but they might not be very nutritious Uh, they might not be very tasty sometimes plants that grow on nutrient poor soils aren't the ones we necessarily want to eat Um, but other plants require lots of nutrients so you have to do a lot of preparation of the soil digging in lots of compost and nutrient rich compost uh, for the soil to be healthy enough to grow that plant. So can you give me an example of a plant that needs nutrient-rich soil? Um, a lot of, most of the things we eat every day that we go and buy at the supermarket would usually require some input into the soil. So, so carrots, potatoes, cucumbers, etc. Um, yeah, the cucumbers would be an example. All the cucurbits, so the cucumbers, pumpkins, zucchinis, cantaloupes all those they're all in the same plant family and they tend to need a lot of a lot more compost than others squash spinach yep squash would be in that family as well um carrots aren't that fussy and potatoes but um 
you can sometimes grow them on soil that has already had another crop first without doing a lot of treatment for the second crop so you might grow zucchini which is really you need to get a lot of soil preparation and then when you take the zucchini out you could plant carrots next without a lot of preparation um, spinach needs a lot parsley which i mentioned before would be an example of something that doesn't need a lot i sometimes get parsley cropping up in an area that I haven't prepared at all and it will still be lush and um, grow fine so yeah in my garden parsley grows like a weed it grows in our seed it grows everywhere yeah and it's very nutrient rich so I, that's that seems funny to me as well that um, something that is known to be very high in nutrients is not fussy with the amount of nutrients that's in the soil that it grows in so Wow, that's really amazing that parsley can create nutrients, or not create nutrients, but like suck it out of the ground. Find them, yeah. Like in a big straw. It's like the nutrients are all there, but it's hard to access them. Yeah, and different plants have different um, size root systems. So some are very shallow rooted, like coriander and lettuce you can grow them in very shallow soil but others uh, like tomatoes or parsley probably they like to really spread out so maybe that's why they can go better in um as long as i've got the space they can go okay in less nutrient-rich soil so what got you particularly into the sector of gardening we as humans like to call composting um, well, that was more recent. I got into gardening, as I said, when I was uh, very young, but it was only a few years ago. I was working at Ceres and there was this big pile which just looked like a pile of straw bales. And someone told me to go and stick my hand in it. Um, and so I did. And when I stuck my hand through the straw, on the middle was actually, I discovered, a hot compost pile. And I... It was so hot that if I'd gone any deeper, I would have burnt my fingers. And I found that quite amazing that you could have just natural things working away um, that would produce that such an impressive amount of heat. And that got me interested in hot composting, which is a way that you can, if you've got a large amount of compostable materials all at once, uh, you can make a big hot compost pile and the microbes will breed together really fast and within a few days they they generate they're eating so much of the the fuel that's there in the compost pile that they're generating lots of heat and it's, some people even make these hot compost piles and can use them to heat up water if you run a hose through it you can you know have a hot shower or something as a byproduct of the of the hot compost pile Um, at the same time I was helping out coordinate a a trivia night at my kids school which was going to produce a lot of waste because they wanted to serve the food on a on compostable plates and I was asking them well what's going to happen to these compostable plates and their plan was to put the compostable plates in landfill. And I was like, well, What's that's not... compostable plate? <laughs> that doesn't actually help the environment if you are 
using compostable plates but putting them in landfill that can actually that's actually sort of bad for the environment because it's going to produce that methane what's the point of a compostable plate if you're not going to compost it properly well, i think some people think that's better than a plastic plate um but in my view if you're going to have a compostable material you want to make sure you're actually composting it um, and so then i thought well i can help out with this trivia night collect all the compostable plates and make a big hot compost pile in my backyard and I can you know save the day kind of thing um, but then I realized that the compostable plates were very very high in carbon and for a good hot compost pile you need to have a good carbon to nitrogen balance so you, the balance needs to be roughly one part one part nitrogen to 25 parts carbon and these plates would probably have been one to a hundred. So if you just had a whole heap of compostable plates and nothing else, they wouldn't break down because the there'd be too much carbon for the microbes, those the compostable microbes that we would that would be doing the breaking down. They like a diet of about one to twenty-five. Mm -hmm. So I needed to find a whole heap of nitrogen-rich material, which is things like manure or food scraps. Um, and I needed a, a large quantity of them and I discovered that uh, the fruit and veg shops near my house just throw out mountains and mountains of food scraps from things that customers don't buy and they were also going into landfill so I was like great so I started collecting boxes of that and then I discovered these places like horse stables that were producing lots of manure and I went out and collected them and then I had all my nitrogen rich materials and I made a large hot compost pile in my backyard with all the compostable plates and all the food scraps that were going to go to landfill from my local fruit and veg shop and it was a lot of fun I I mean for me <laughs> I'm a composting nerd now but yeah that was um it felt really good to get all these things that were going to become waste and turn them into a useful product wow that is really, really, really interesting that you were able to become like the ecological superhero there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder what it would sound like if we got together all the previous like origin stories from other podcasters of how they got interested in something and then what they ended up doing and then merged it into one big like comic or something. Mm. We could have a nature comic or something. How important is the pH balance in soil? Uh, so pH measures um, the level of acidity or alkalinity in soil. Yes. So it's a scale from 0 to 14, with 7 being neutral right in the middle, a perfect balance between acidity, like not at all acidic and not at all alkaline. And then the further you go into the extremes, if you go um, to towards 14, you're getting more alkaline. And if you go towards zero, you're getting more and more acidic. And generally, life on Earth likes it to be close to neutral. Um, but some things are naturally... Some plants like it to be a little bit alkaline and other plants like it to be a little bit more acidic. So um, you mentioned potatoes before. Potatoes, blueberries would be an example of plants that like acidic soil. So if you tried to grow those in soil that was alkaline they might struggle and then spinach would be an example of a plant that doesn't like acidic soil so 
Uh, they like it to be a bit more alkaline, so you'd try and, if you had seven, it would probably be okay, but if it was something like five or six, the spinach might not grow well. So what does pH stand for? It stands for power of hydrogen. So how important is it? Is it like it will just not grow if it's too alkaline? Or is it like a inconvenience for the plant in its life? Yeah, it, it might grow a little bit. It's to do with how that plant accesses nutrients in the soil. So the pH um, allows some nutrients to become available or less available depending on on the pH and so if those plants aren't getting those nutrients um, they might not die on the spot but they might just be have stunted growth the fruit might be a bit small and um, not very attractive looking it might uh, not flourish in the soil but sometimes if it was if it was really extremely acidic or alkaline and it might it would kill the plant it depends how far away from its ideal pH you're going tragic yeah most soils are are okay though so like you can garden for years without ever testing pH and without ever running into big problem it's it's just something to keep in mind if you're wondering hey how come my spinach is not growing it might be that the pH is out and then you could look into pH testing so it doesn't necessarily make it not grow it just makes it harder for it to thrive yes that's a really great way of putting it so and because that's one of the main goals of the plant which is to have seeds and you know grow and to thrive i like that word (laughs) (laughs) yeah and compost is usually a little bit on the acidic side uh so that's a good way to bring the if the ph is is too high in soil a good way to bring it down would be adding compost Mm -hmm. so what's the ideal amount of compost in soil that's a really good question because a lot of people would assume the more the merrier but that doesn't always work in gardening sometimes you can put too much compost in soil and the organic matter can be too high and the plants are not as happy and it also depends how well composted how well broken down the compost is. If you put fresh compost on um, soil and it hasn't fully broken down and you did a lot of that, uh, you'd actually have worse soil than if you did nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you've got to make sure that the compost product you've got is a quality one. Um, I think the general rule I would say is about... Yeah, you, what would you sprinkle on about three centimeters evenly on the soil would be a good amount and then do you have to mix and then it you in? dig it through yeah but you might also need to add some kind of extra fertilizer as well if the compost you're digging through is not uh hasn't been created for really high nutrient levels mm-hmm. so how can i stop attracting rats and possums and stuff to my homemade compost barrel if i have a home compost then how can i stop it from getting raided yes yeah if you often if you have just an open system um that would be one of the impediments to taking up composting that people have because they don't want to attract uh rodents um so you can buy compost systems that are completely rodent proof 
um, so the above ground rotating ones, or there's one, there's a product called an aero bin, which has, um, it's above ground, but it has an internal lung system to get the oxygen in there without ro needing to rotate. So if you're really worried about attracting rats, you could purchase one of those systems that is rat proof, or you can make your dig in, um, compost bin those in ground ones you can I've heard of people doing things like putting chicken wire digging chicken wire um, and putting it on the bottom so that the worms can still come and get through but if you get a fine enough mesh that a mouse or a rat couldn't get through it then that can stop them coming in I don't do any of those things I just accept that occasionally there'll be a rat that might come along and dig around in the soil I love, yeah, because I love animals, but I don't exactly want a mouse in my house. No. Yeah, and there, there can be problems with things like poisons that you, that you don't want to use because they can be a bit cruel and they can also get into the body of the rat that then can hurt a local species like an owl that eats that rat. So, yeah, we want to avoid attracting large amounts of rodents and um, i don't want to poison the rats anyway yeah that would make me sad some people get into rat trapping like setting traps which is a little bit quicker and humane way to die but yeah some people That's don't want to do that, don't do that. <laughs> don't. yeah i wonder if you could just like lure the rats and then force them to be your pets <laughs> you have like a pet army of rats yeah and take over london um, I generally just dig dig my compost into the soil and if I, um, like if you're making a big hot compost pile, it breaks down so fast that there's nothing there that the rats want to eat within a few days. And the other thing is there's some products that will attract rats more than others and you can make sure you keep them out of your outside system. So for example, bread and um, food leftovers like rice or whatever or meat scraps are much more rodent attracting so you could have um, something like a bakashi bucket inside that has a lid that a rat can't get into for those sort of products and then your outside system you're putting more things that rats wouldn't be interested in like carrot tops or um, you know, general other food scraps rather than food waste, like human sort of leftovers from your plate. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thing a rat would love. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about meat, but can I actually compost meat in, or is it only for really veggies? I mean, you, you it's obviously possible to do it, but is it really a recommended thing or is it not really... Yeah, I mean, you can do it, and some systems are much better at dealing with meat than others. It's, yeah, like we said, it might attract rats and things, pests that you don't want in your garden. It can also, they can sometimes have diseases that might uh, go into the soil. And what about dairy? Um, yeah, I, I think little amounts of things I don't fuss too much over, but there are definitely systems that if you are producing a lot of meat scraps, you might want to invest in one of those. Like I think solar cones are one of the 
good products that will take meat and um, break it down really well. And bakashi bins, I think, do as well because you're sprinkling the microbes on them and they can live under the sink and can break that down well. Mm-hmm. So having a variety of systems would be um, good to make sure you've got something for that can take all of what you are producing yourself. So if you're a vegetarian, obviously you don't have to worry about that, but if you're producing lots of meat scraps, you might like to go for one of those systems that can handle. Mm-hmm. So... How does composting affect the environment, keeping in mind that anaerobic composting produces methane? Yeah, that's one of the thing one of the reasons I love to compost in the backyard is that it produces a lot less methane, um, which is a greenhouse gas that's about twenty times more powerful than carbon dioxide. We often talk about carbon dioxide and ways that we can produce less carbon dioxide when we're burning fossil fuels but methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas and when you put food scraps into uh, a system where there's going to be anaerobic breakdown which would be landfills would be an example of that because the food scraps are buried underground surrounded by plastic and um, so the, the food scraps get trapped and they don't have a lot of oxygen. And if you are breaking things down without oxygen, you're going to encourage a certain type of bacteria, the anaerobic bacteria, and that's when they break it down. And a byproduct of that is methane. And then that goes off into the atmosphere and is a, is a greenhouse gas. So overall, if you're composting... In, anaer- in an anaerobic way, is that going to be bad for the environment? Or is it because it's a bit of a two sided coin because you know it's producing compost and it's breaking down the food waste that would have otherwise maybe gone to landfill and also making more compost to grow plants in, but it also produces methane. So is it actually good for the environment or is it more of just a, I don't know bad for the environment I guess well that's the wonderful thing about backyard composting you're not tending to use the anaerobic bacteria because there's lots of oxygen in your backyard systems and if you're um, so you'll be then encouraging a different kind of bacteria that composts it turns it back into soil and doesn't have methane as the byproduct it's it's the anaerobic breaking down so that's the thing that happens in landfill um, that produces the methane but standard backyard composting doesn't produce a lot it might produce a li- there's a little bit of off-gassing but a lot less than what you get at landfills and industrial composting as well produces more methane because it's very high temperature very large volumes so much the best thing for the environment is to um, break down your own waste in your own backyard in mm-hmm. in smaller scale with things like worms and the aerobic bacteria, aerobic microbes. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So the answer is, is anaero- so anaerobic is not ideal. You'd be better off doing it how you just explained, which is much better for the environment and just 
a nice way of doing it on the whole. Yeah. Because it's quite enjoyable. I mean, they, it, anaerobic breakdown can be interesting and you can actually use it for environmental benefit as well, which is a bit of a twist. Uh, but if you have a way of trapping that methane that the anaerobic bacteria are making, you can use it as a fuel. And I believe some landfills and some sewerage uh, networks try to do that. They, they will have big plastic cover over the top that traps the methane and then uses it as a biogas, which is a more environmentally friendly way of generating uh, electricity and than um, burning fossil fuels, burning coal, burning oil, things like that. And there are some, some anaerobic composting systems, it can be a cheap way to make fuel. So I know they're quite popular in India, setting up a purposeful anaerobic composting system because they use the, the methane to cook with. You can burn it like, your, like a gas burner, um, or you could use it for heating if it's if you're in a cold part of the world. So there can be advantages to the anaerobic um, breakdown if you are using the methane, but if you're just letting the methane escape off into the atmosphere, yeah, that's not that's not a good thing. I think I heard at some point where there was a sewage that would go through this tunnel and it would have these big ponds and all the gas would flow up and get caught there. Yeah. And they would use that. And then by the end of all the, going through all these different ponds, it would be completely clean, drinkable water. Yes. Yep. There's amazing systems. But when you're going to watch it, you in like the car or something, you've got to keep all the windows closed because it smells so bad. Yeah, that's the disadvantage of anaerobic. The anaerobic breakdown is a lot more stinky. And that can be a way that you, if you're monitoring the health of your compost bin in your backyard if it's starting to stink that's a sign that you don't have enough oxygen in the system and you're uh, breeding the anaerobic bacteria which are the stinky ones as opposed to the aerobic ones which don't produce a lot of the smell mm-hmm. so that's that's a, one of the ways you can work out how well you're doing composting in your backyard mm-hmm. is, uh, is the smell a good compost or worm farm shouldn't smell. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of worm farms, what are your opinions and the advantages of having a worm farm over a compost? Uh, worm farms produce really nutritious soil and they also produce fertilizer, which is um, as long as you dilute it with water first, it's really good plant food. And yeah, like I said before, they don't smell at all. If as long as they're um, as long as you haven't overfed the worms and the amount that you're feeding them is in proportion to the population of worms that you have, like they need to be able to keep up with what you're adding in. If you add in too much, uh, then it can start to smell a bit. Um, but generally, you you'll notice that straight away, and you'll feed less and see what the worms are keeping up with. So the product that you get from worms is is great so that's one of the advantages that you end up with a really nutritious um you, it's called worm castings but the end result of a worm farm is great and plants love it 
Um, disadvantages would be they don't like really hot weather. So they can sometimes be killed if in a Victorian heat wave. That's uh, if you le left them out in the sun, if you had your worm farm in the sun, you could you could kill your population. So you've always got to keep them in a dark, damp section of your yard where they never get sun and always stay around. They like about 15 degrees would be their ideal temperature, 15 to 20 degrees. Save but yeah. the worms. Sometimes if, it, if there's going to be a heat wave, I will put a ice cream container of water in my freezer and get a solid block of ice wrap it in newspaper and put it in my worm farm this is this is a really bad heat wave like over 40 degrees mm -hmm. and then i put that in to just keep them alive um mm -hmm. and they also aren't they don't tend to do a lot of activity if it's really really cold as well like midwinter you need to feed your worms less because they're not as active as the spring and autumn kind of time of year um but yeah worms are fantastic and they're also usually uh rat proof we were talking about rats before they're usually um above ground and so rats can't get into them so that's a, that's another advantage they're not connected to the soil and they don't smell at all so and you can use them in really small spaces another advantage if you've only got something like and you're in an apartment block and you've only got a balcony you could have a worm farm in that space so you don't need to have a backyard so a worm farms the superior way to compost i think there is no superior way to compost i think it depends on what your situation is which composting system you would like to do mm-hmm so there's no one best way to do it. It depends what you want, how much space you've got, how much food, how much food scraps you produce, what you want to do with the end product. But worm farms would suit a lot of people in a lot of situations. So you've been talking quite a bit about temperature here. So can you talk a bit about photosynthesis and what you think about it and how it really works? Photosynthesis is when um plants convert the energy in the form of sunlight from the sun into sugars in like, their leaves like and energy yeah and so that's how the plant grows they get energy from the sun and magically convert that energy in in their leaves into sugar which is then transported around the plant to produce new growth and that might be the carrot underneath the plant it might be they store the the sugar down there um, or it might be making a new leaf for itself um, but yeah that's how that's how life on earth starts with photosynthesis with our producers mm -hmm. so a plant's just made of sugar then well yeah and <laughs> i guess so when we're yeah when we're eating plants different kinds of sugar not like sh sugar that you get in the in the supermarket that's a very concentrated form of um usually from sugar cane so the syrupy part in the middle of 
sugar cane, but no, it's or barley sugar sometimes. There's lots of different um, elements, I guess, that make up plants. I think they're mostly carbon and nitrogen, and so that would be part of the building blocks of the plant as well. And then the the glucose is like the the energy rich part that flows around and helps to make some of that new growth. So it's like their fuel, their food, plant yeah. food. Yeah. And sometimes they store it for themselves and we get the benefits of that. We come and sort of steal it from them. Like <laughs> when a carrot makes a carrot for itself, it's not doing it so that we can eat the carrot. <laughs> it's doing it because it wants to store energy to make its seeds later on. <laughs> My carrot now. <laughs> and we usually we pick the carrot and then the carrot doesn't get to make its seeds That's and make its babies and tragic. make more carrots. Mm. Tragic. That's I always try to leave one carrot behind in every crop so that I have then seeds for the next crop. I feel mean pulling them all out. I think, well, they want to be able to make some babies. <laughs> he killed me and my family. <laughs> Why did he leave this one? Why? <laughs> Is that carrot emotionally scarred? from having its family taken away and chopped up and put in a soup. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the feelings of plants. There's different theories about it. Mm -hmm. So when you're growing a plant, you often use some kind of fertilizer like manure. So do different types of manure support different types of plants? Um, I'm not sure if there's different yeah, there, there might be. I don't know too much about it. I do know that different types of manure have different carbon to nitrogen ratios. So some are very, very rich in nitrogen, like chicken poo and bird poo. Other bird poos um, are very high in nitrogen. And then things like horse manure and cow manure would be still high in nitrogen, but not as rich as the, as the bird. The bird poo. So I guess a plant that likes a lot of nitrogen like zucchini is an example would uh might prefer a to have chicken poo mm -hmm. so do you know why it's illegal to use human feces or manure um i think well we don't generally use poos of carnivores or omnivores in vegetable growing because they are more likely to carry diseases uh so and we are usually omnivores and we definitely eat meat so we produce a different quality of poo and it could have yeah it could carry um diseases that could then go into the soil and would be unhealthy for us to eat or dangerous for us to eat um but i believe if you break them down break down human manure in the right way um and make sure you that what that person has eaten is going to be safe because um, there's some things you can eat or you can consume as a as a human like a pharmaceutical product um, that might you might not want that to go into a food system mm -hmm. um, only vegans may <laughs> only vegans may use yes i wonder if vegans produce your... um, safer poo than than meat-eating maniacs. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think some people do. I've met someone who used his own, this was in Japan, so not Australia, but he had his own system and he was very careful about who he let use his uh, toilet and he, you know, got to know them first and made sure uh, they weren't taking strange products. And I think he had a system that if it, if you don't, as long as you're not, not putting it straight on the soil and you know how to break it down well, you can use human manure. But wow. It's hard I, work. You definitely need to do research first to make sure you knew what you were doing, though. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is really interesting. And I've been really enjoying this podcast so far, talking about, about all these different topics. And I've been just having such a good time. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Thanks for letting us have you here, Arwen. It was really nice having you on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of this Noodlebugs podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Look out for other Noodlebugs podcasts that may be coming soon, and have a good day.